Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks very much for joining us today. Our guest is Major General Cameron Holt, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting, the U.S. Air Force, the Department of the Air Force, really. We wanted to focus this session on lessons learned for the government contracting business from the pandemic. Uh, just like in every business, I think a lot of challenges, but a lot of opportunities to do things differently or be forced to do things differently, really. And just for our viewers and, and listeners, one of the reasons I wanted to kick off this session with General Holt is that, you know, you, I think you've definitely been one of the most outspoken, reform-minded people inside the acquisition bureaucracy that I've ever heard speak on these issues. So, you know, if there's anyone who'd be willing to use this as an opportunity to try some new things, I think it'd be you. I, I, th I think the most logical place to start this conversation is kind of toward the start of the pandemic. T take us back to that time frame, maybe the March time frame, if you would. As this all started to emerge, I'm sure there was a bit of a fog of war aspect to it, but but what were some of the most obvious things, the oh wows that came at you right away that you knew that you were going to have to tackle and, and act on? Well, it's a good story, Jared, actually. Um, and and again, I'm so, uh, I'm so fortunate of the work that we have done leading up to uh, the pandemic, because I will tell you, in Air Force contracting, we've been on a tear, a revolution, so to speak, as you mentioned, called mission-focused business leadership, where we have taken a ton of actions to push authorities down, kill all the rules that don't make any sense, uh, that don't get, that don't have any relevance towards the mission, really inspire some of our young folks to take risks, to innovate. Um, and really understand the mission uh, and then apply their expertise in contracting to literally find the best ways forward uh, and not uh, fear the DC recrimination culture as you do that. Uh, and frankly, I, you know, I think it's been refreshing to see the response of that cultural change. Uh, and it's become, and it's so necessary to great power competition. Uh, back in March, we had no idea that uh, the, you know, we were preparing for great power competition uh, and setting contracting up as a leader in a leadership role as business leaders that make uh, good decisions, but make them fast and use all the tools in the toolkit and then invent some where, where, in, where they need to be invented. And that culture, I would tell you, served us well uh, that that day in March. I remember very well. It was the first day that I uh, that I stayed home. A lot of people stayed home. Uh, and my boss, Dr. Roper, uh, sent me an email and, uh, and, he, and he let me know that uh, he wanted me to stand up an Air Force-wide, Department of the Air Force-wide acquisition COVID-19 task force uh, to respond. Uh, and he needed that done really rapidly. Uh, and I sat in my living room and I had uh, my government-issued iPhone 6 uh, on me, my trusty iPhone 6. I went to my computer uh, and tried to hook up to the VPN, uh, no joy, uh, which was not uh, unusual at that point in time. Uh, and so literally we stood up an Air Force wide task force with four lines of effort, each of which led at, at a very high level across the Department of the Air Force in 48 hours out of an iPhone 6. <laughs> so that's the first indication I knew that we were going to be having to make things up as we go along and there was going to be a lot of audible calls played, 
but we were ready to go. Um, you know, the Air Force has a lot of background in wartime contracting, but a lot of that skill set from uh, my experiences after 9-11 and in Afghanistan really served uh, us well as we sprung to action in response. Uh, when my boss said go, we were ready to go in under 72 hours. You mentioned all the preparatory work that you had done not knowing a pandemic was coming for, for great power competition. And I, I think it's fair to say probably one of those main things, to use an overused word, is is you needed to get yourself ready to be agile. What, what were some of the specific things you did that you are glad in retrospect you had done when the pandemic started? Yeah, so great question, Jared. So when I uh, first uh, became the head of contracting for the Air Force, my attitude was, well, I didn't promote me, so it's the Air Force's fault. What happens now? And we got busy uh, and we set ourselves in alignment, as I said, with the, with the national defense strategy and great power competition. And I, I, I told my contracting workforce, in fact, the first thing I did as AQC was to really get together a threat briefing that I could take to every man, woman and child in contracting. Uh, and for an hour, I would take them through a classified threat briefing of how serious this threat is, not, not talking a little, even one ounce about contracting. And because our people are great, but they need to be told why, uh, not just the what. And then we set about standing up an Air Force Contracting Board of Directors. We doubled their authority, each one of those directors, we doubled their authority to a billion dollars. And frankly, I've been delegating above a billion dollars to them. And I asked each of them to be kind of like the presidents of their own companies, entrepreneurial instead of bureaucratic. Um, and I gave them a lot of authority. We pushed authority even below that level. We increased authority to the tactical edge, the contracting officer, by up to 10 times. Uh, and we set those as minimum authority levels, not maximum authority levels. And then over the last year, we proceeded to rip apart our Air Force regulations uh, through something I called Operation Clean Sweep. And we deleted every mandatory procedure in contracting below the Air Force level, Department of Air Force wide under an initiative called Tools, Not Rules. Uh, and then we pushed out new electronic tools, new data analytic tools to our people, uh, along with the authority, new training uh, in, in the uh, business world, not just in contracting, but in balance sheets and cash flow statements and income statements, uh, understanding venture capital, understanding uh, private equity, understanding uh, Wall Street. And that new business acumen and that new swagger, that new culture of being connected to the mission and literally hacking our own antiquated Cold War acquisition and contracting system to get to the mission faster and better and more innovative without fear. Those are the things that we set up um, that I think made the difference. And the, the COVID-19 response through the task force, which really engaged all of Air Force contracting, was really a graduation exercise. It was an early graduation exercise. But I will tell you, um, we passed uh, magna cum laude, um, and uh, I, I couldn't be more proud of, of the results. Just on the piece about pushing authorities lower in the chain of command, uh, th that's obviously got its virtues, and I, I totally understand why you would do that. But it, but it seems to me kind of the history of acquisition reform is those things move in cycles or waves. For a while, authority will get pushed back down and then it'll get pushed back up to the Pentagon, usually because something has gone really wrong in Congress or, right. or somebody gets upset. Do, do you worry <laughs> that we're going to, that, that, that that cycle will continue? Or, or is there anything you can do to, to prevent that from repeating itself? 
Yes, um, as a matter of fact, you can. When you, when you do it as a management initiative or you do it for CHO, it's very simple to push authority down and be very uh, sound, very um, innovative and forward leaning and, and all that. The truth of the matter is if you really want it to endure, uh, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it is a lot of hard work because you've got you've to write it down and you've got to be willing to burn what, what you're not going to use anymore. You've got to cut the bait. And so I joke around with my folks that, that uh, I'm Cortez and I am burning the chips behind us. Uh, we are not going back. And so we, in that Operation Clean Sweep, for example, um, not only did we uh, delete all hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of uh, useless uh, mandatory procedures that really served to just stop people from thinking and sucked all the authority uh, and innovation out of the room. Uh, but we also even streamlined what remained and we simplified it. Uh, and, and we uh, developed new structures like the Air Force Contracting Board of Directors uh, and we gave them authorities. We did the hard work to actually write it down. I would say that it's not impossible for it to go back because nothing is impossible. Um, if we got leadership, for example, that really wanted to regulate and control and micromanage, um, you know, over time that, that will happen by itself. Um, but what we have done is make it incredibly hard to get there. And, and we have taken the shackles off of every man, woman, and child in Air Force contracting. And frankly, they're using that authority and they are coming up with some things that are just amazing, uh, but completely compliant um, in, in terms of how we do business. What, what, what did you have to do or what, what do you think you were successful in, in, in getting individual contracting officers down at that level to overcome the, the famous government risk aversion? Right. So, um, you know, another, another um, thing we skip, I, I, I kind of referred to this earlier, but the thing we skip as senior leaders sometimes is we think that our agenda or our leadership um, initiatives are so compelling that all we have to do is tell the workforce what they're going to do now. And we expect that they're just going to connect with that. I, I disagree. I think, I, I think if, if you really respect the people that work for you, what you'll do is you'll go out of your way to explain the why before you explain, before you explain the what. And that, um, that effort of going out and to appeal to Air Force contracting, to appeal to my family in Air Force contracting with that threat briefing, uh, to show them how real that, that threat is from China and Russia and why I think their knowledge, which really is second to none, of the details of how to turn dollars into fly fight wind for the United States Air Force and the United States Space Force, why their skills are absolutely necessary to take a leadership role right now. And, that, and the fact is, if we don't lead, no one else can because no one else is trained to the level that we are in the details of how to get uh, things done. That was a big game changer. And I think a lot of our workforce just hearing that um, and hearing me say that I'm going to be the blast shield for you, honest mistakes are fine. Ethical mistakes are not, um, but honest mistakes are fine. If we lose the GAO protest, I'm not going to freak out. If we get our name in the paper, I'm not going to freak out about that. There are people paid full time to make that happen. And it's a fool's errand for us to try to avoid it. We will make mistakes. 
Uh, any innovator is going to make mistakes, but we're not going to freak out about it and we'll keep going. But to, to answer the question, I would tell you, I can say all of that. We can write it down. We've got a nice uh, strategic plan called Mission Focused Business Leadership. We've got teams set up all across the Air Force, horizontally across all the stovepipe commands, changing the reality over time uh, in, in uh, four different lines of effort. Um, we can do that, but it's really the actions backing up the words that I would say makes the most difference. I actually look and, and hope for those rainy days where we have made a mistake or where a team wants to try something new that, that I may not even agree with, uh, that I may think that it's not going to work out the way you want to, but I still let the team go and do it and see how it goes. Um, those are the actions where I'm, I'm willing to back up my words. And every leader has a say-do gap, what I call a say-do gap. They're saying one thing, but they're doing another and they're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do is make sure that I expose myself to the accountability of the folks that I lead. And they are perfectly, it's perfectly fine for them to call me out on any say-do gaps. And then I try to make sure that that is minimized. So it's the action behind the words, I would say, that really drives it home. But you can't avoid the why and you can't avoid articulating the what clearly. Major General Cameron Holt is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting. Short break here and we will come back and talk more about some of the specific policy changes the Air Force made in response to COVID-19 that had an impact on its pandemic response. This is a special edition of On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servid. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is a special edition of On DoD, sponsored by ProPricer. We're talking with Major General Cameron Holt, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting, about some of the lessons learned for the acquisition community from the COVID-19 pandemic. You've given us a pretty good flavor for some of the things that you did pre-COVID that, that you think put, us, put you in a good place. Well, right. What about the policy changes? And, and some of this came from the, the OSD level, but the Air Force, I'm sure, did some work in this space, too. Policy changes that you did in response to COVID that you think were impactful that helped helped get you through this time. Right. So we I think, uh, you know, uh, and I have to I have to take my hats off hat off to OSD as well. The DPC folks were were lockstep with us in moving out with the policy changes that needed to be made immediately. And so. Um, so props to them. But I will tell you, we were we were moving out even ahead of them in some cases with um, uh, policies that uh, gave contractors the ability to determine uh, mission essential uh, activities. Uh, and that was one big deal because um, as a lot of vital national security work had to continue, even in the face of local and state restrictions on movement, um, we had to provide some uh, rapid definitions of what's mission essential so that those contractors could work with their local authorities and still come to work and still um, produce uh, with obvious precautions. That was one. Another was changing the, um, the posture of contracting policy from a peacetime uh, uh, context to a wartime context. 
And so we turned on all the contingency contracting uh, authorities. Um, and um, so that basically brought, you know, all of the flexibilities we would exercise on a battlefield uh, into uh, the continental United States. And that was really critical because we had to move really fast to save some industries and some companies that were immediately impacted by the rapid downturn of commercial air traffic, commercial aircraft orders, engine orders, uh, and on and on. We sent a number of policy memos out too that were nothing more than encouraging. Encouraging contracting officers and program managers to lean forward, to exercise every authority at their disposal. Um, and, and some of those, um, I, I think, actually made a difference as well. Um, and behind that, it, uh, we saw a lot of rapid actions that I think in retrospect now really did uh, preserve a lot of the defense industrial base that could have been far more impacted than they were. First off, with aggressive financing terms, DCMA uh, worked, with the, worked with us and did a, 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 a set of blanket uh, increases in the progress payment rate that immediately impacted uh, all fixed price contracts uh, across the department. Uh, we aggressively uh, negotiated performance-based payments to increase cash flow. And we even had some instances where we had to work with DPC to deviate from the federal acquisition regulation rapidly to do certain advanced payments uh, that were very targeted um, and secured with letters of credit um, from the company side, but um, those wound up being game changers in retrospect. At the time, we were looking at all the financial data and all the financial downturn data, and we knew we had our full support of our leadership to go after every tool possible. And as the experts in contracting, we knew what those tools were, and we applied them aggressively and immediately. And I think that made a tremendous difference. On the industrial base piece, I, uh, one thing I wonder is, is how, how satisfied are you with the tools that you have to monitor the health of the parts of the base that you really want to keep close tabs on? And, and along with that, you know, you don't have unlimited money to use under the Defense Production Act or the rest of the tool sets that you have. How, how do you decide who really needs immediate assistance in a situation like this when there are so many companies in trouble? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. And as and. Your, um, your listeners may not know, but the Air Force is actually the executive agent for all Defense Production Act Title III right. uh, execution. Um, and uh, you know, I have to say, this is another area where OSD really um, moved out quickly. They established an industrial base council in the uh, industrial policy office of, of OSD. And then as the executive agent, we teamed with them uh, to establish that that process and all of the services and agencies are represented in that. Uh, to answer your first question, um, do we have the tools and the data that are necessary to really assess the defense industrial base? Uh, I, I'll answer that yes, sort of. You know, we as the executive agent have um, a great team of folks that focus on the industrial base all the time. And not just the uh, industrial base that provides air, air and space capabilities, but also shipbuilding and all the joint capabilities as well. Um, I've, I uh, had not had a lot of personal experience with that in, the, in, in my past, but when we set up the task force, 
a line of effort two was called resilience. And that, that in, encapsulated all the Defense Production Act activities. And some of the uh, industry expanding contracts and, and, um, and agreements that we executed so rapidly, I was so impressed with how much we did know about the industrial base. What we did not know is, is what state was the medical industry in. We knew a lot about the defense industry. We didn't understand uh, to a deep extent what the medical industry uh, constraints would be. And we had to learn that very rapidly. But I'll give you one example that is just a fantastic example of where we applied what we did know to what we didn't. So we were asked to expand the production capacity for nasal swabs rapidly. And there's a little company in, in Maine called Puritan, small company, family owned company. Uh, and incidentally, they make most of the swabs for the United States. And yet it's a family run small business. And when we approach them with having to ramp up production uh, to such an extent, um, they were really at a loss for how do they do that that quickly? How do they uh, create all the machinery and facility and plant and equipment that quickly to get moving? Our folks that work DPA um, knew um, all about Bath Ironworks that was just literally a couple of hours from Puritan. And we know everything there is to know about Bath Ironworks, even though that's typically a Navy contractor, not an Air Force contractor. And we knew what their capabilities were. We knew what they were good at. And we asked Bath Ironworks leadership, would you partner with us and with Puritan to help them rapidly stand up uh, machine tools and the plant and equipment necessary? And I was so pleased with Bath Ironworks response to that. They said, absolutely, we're in. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, they set up all the machine tools with them and their supply base, set up all those machine tools so rapidly to start churning out a high number of nasal swabs. It was incredible to watch. So yes, we knew a lot about some areas, but we didn't know a lot about others. The other thing that we didn't understand very well was that financial um, fragility uh, measurement. So as the IBC at, at the OSD level started to look at how are we going to invest this to the maximum benefit of COVID-19 response, because that's what Congress asked us to do in the CARES Act. And we looked at that very carefully against what are, what are the mission fragilities, what are the defense and medical market fragilities, and then what are their financial fragilities? And we had to, um, you know, as part of, again, back to mission-focused business leadership, understanding financials um, became extraordinarily important. And when you see uh, the downturn in cash flow, the downturn, um, the layoffs that we started experiencing, applying the right business tools to that, that problem uh, became uh, um, very, very important. So DPA had its role to play, uh, but we stayed very closely aligned to what Congress asked us to do. And it was all COVID impacted um, industrial base. But the other tools that we had to influence cash flow and influence revenue, uh, we applied those as well outside of DPA funding. Um, and for example, uh, on the revenue side, when you're losing lots of jobs in different parts of the country, 
Um, and I and I will tell you the data analytics that we got on job losses was amazing. Mm. We could we were tracking job losses state by state by state, and we were looking at how do we uh, invest in a way that rapidly provides relief to the American people, not just to the defense industrial base, small business, large business, all of it. And one of the things that we did in the Air Force, and I know the other services did as well, is accelerate existing uh, pre-award contracting, and so. $3.9 billion worth of contracting in the Air Force accelerated so that we could get revenue uh, started with those companies immediately. And, and uh, that made a huge difference to the, uh, the jobs, uh, making sure that we don't lose those jobs or we can actually reverse the effects of losing those jobs. You can take a short break here, and when we come back, we'll talk more about lessons learned for the acquisition community from COVID-19 with Major General Cameron Holt, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting at the U.S. Air Force. And I'm your moderator, Jared Serbu. This is On DoD on Federal News Network, sponsored by ProPricer. Back on On DoD, sponsored by ProPricer on Federal News Network. And our guest again is Major General Cameron Holt, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting at the Department of the Air Force. And I'm your moderator, Jared Serbu. And before the break, General, you were mentioning that in response to COVID-19, you, you kind of took the Air Force or the Department of the Air Force, rather, from a peacetime to a wartime footing and turned on all the mechanisms that you would use in wartime. Out of all the things that you learned from COVID, I'm sure some of them are probably really only applicable in that wartime like footing but but what have you learned that you want to carry forward on a, a on a go forward basis even in peacetime i'm sure there are many of those things yeah there are actually i mean we've learned a lot um gosh um one of the one of the things right off the top of my head is how powerful a teleworking or a virtual environment really can be um, early on in this, as I mentioned, we couldn't even get on VPN because our networks were so uh, horrible. Um, but the folks that that worked that uh, increased those pipes dramatically. Um, so that was one. The second thing was the tools that we use. Um, we, you know, we're talking on Zoom right now. I, I don't think before this hit, I've ever used Zoom before or WebEx or any of those. Um, I mean, I've used Skype before, but not not to its fullest extent. And I think that we have rapidly figured out a whole new set of tools uh, to apply to our business that makes us much more efficient. Now, there is a downside there, and that is, frankly, it's it's it actually takes more out of you uh, because you know I I I may have um, you know 12, 14 meetings in a day. Uh, at least before there was, I had to walk <laughs> between meetings at least. Uh, now, not so much. I, I can leave one topic and, and uh, pick up on another topic within a minute. There's an increase in productivity, but I think we've got to be measured with that because there's a human cost to that as well. And we just got to be paying attention to that. Um, another thing I would say that, that we, have, um, we have learned that I, I would definitely keep is the uh, is different approaches to organizational constructs. When you get into a an emergency situation where you're all of the sudden all of the rules associated with a peacetime bureaucracy are gone, and you can start to think outside the box on how would I form uh, an organization that is optimized towards the end states we have to achieve. 
And so I think, you know, my boss, Dr. Roper, asking me to stand up a task force was absolutely genius. But it also allowed me to stand up like a wartime contracting organization where uh, we don't have to check with any of the stovepipe commands of the Air Force. They're all on board by definition. And we can reach out rapidly to wherever the best experts are uh, and people roll up their sleeves, immediately operate as a team in a task force construct. Uh, operating organizations around the end states rather than just operating them by functions or by uh, command stovepipes drives tremendous amount of unity of effort uh, that also produces much more rapid results. And I think we could probably apply that construct more than we have uh, in peacetime settings. Congress did some things around contracting, and, and you alluded to them in, in the CARES Act, you know, relaxed some of the requirements around OTAs, allowed you to do put more dollars on undefinitized contract actions. As you went through this, was there anything glaring that you wish they had done or an authority that you wish you had that would have made that would have made life easier? And I know you had a list as part of the 809 panel uh, that, that predated this, but anything specific to COVID that you wish Congress had done or, or should do for future events like this? Um, yeah, I think um, with the contingency authorities turned on, um, I think that we pretty much had every tool that we needed to operate rapidly. So I, I wouldn't fault Congress in that. Mm -hmm. um, what I would say is that the complexity of the documentation in our Cold War acquisition and contracting system is still uh, something that you have to deal with, even if it's after the fact um, in a contingency environment. And we really have to start understanding that the world has changed since the 1980s. Um, and and uh, Congress really needs to take this on for us. The challenge is that there are systemic issues that require some knowledge about the way things are. And there's very few folks that understand that and understand how different things are now from the 1980s. I'll just give you one quick example. In the 1980s, if you had asked uh, somebody on the street, who are the most innovative companies in America? They would tell you, oh, you mean besides the defense industry. Uh, now, if you ask that, nobody would even think of anybody in the defense industry. You know, they would think about Google or Intel or Facebook or somebody else. And there's a tremendous number of startups now in America that, frankly, don't have any interest in doing business with the Department of Defense because of how unique all of our business processes are. Mm. Uh, and they're not interested when we put out a solicitation. And those are the people that we have to attract because frankly, some of our adversaries in the world are better at getting them capital investment than we are. And the barriers to entry are simply too high. And now the, there's 80% of the R&D uh, uh, spending in America is not defense, it's commercial. And if we're gonna harness that kind of innovation, we're gonna have to start doing business like they do. We're gonna have to start recognizing that government is not the biggest player in those marketplaces anymore. In fact, we're not even close to the biggest player in those marketplaces. And so we're gonna need authorities from Congress to act uh, with just good judgment and, and not, um, not as in the paradigm of a 1980s uh, government uh, setting. 
The last thing I would tell you is um, this applies to COVID and it applies to emergencies and it applies uh, to the great power competition. We have got to figure out a way uh, to allow Congress to oversee us without the use of subdivided appropriations down to the Nats eyelash. Uh, we're gonna have to provide more funding flexibility in broad portfolios of capabilities and allow for um, more fungibility between uh, what we invest in in execution year. The idea of appropriating a certain dollar for a certain purpose for a certain program with a certain contractor immediately destroys our monopsonistic advantage. Uh, and it limits the flexibility to such a degree that we can't compete with China or Russia uh, in, in terms of the speed of decision-making uh, that is necessary. And so those are the things that I would say that I, I, I would love to have real serious conversations with the staffers on the Hill, not, not to avoid oversight, but to reinvent oversight. Major General Cameron Holt is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting. One final break here, and we will wrap up our conversation on the Air Force Contracting Community's response to COVID-19 on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is a special edition of On DoD. I'm Jared Sertiv. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is a special edition of On DOD, and we're talking with Major General Cameron Holt, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting, about lessons learned about contracting from the pandemic. I want to talk real quickly about pricing here as we start to, to wind down, because I, I, I think the Air Force is probably especially vulnerable to things like sole source situations, especially in the, the spare parts market, even in the best of times. Um, and so I'm just curious, have you seen many instances during COVID where companies maybe tried to take advantage of the situation, of, of the urgent needs that you had um, to put you in a situation where you felt like you weren't getting fair and reasonable prices? Yeah, so it, my answer will be interesting to you. So from the perspective of, of price gouging and fair and reasonable prices, I haven't seen as, that as much as I uh, would have expected to hmm. see. And that is, um, that's actually de uh, delightful. I mean, I think that's, that's wonderful. It's a testament to some of these uh, contractors and their willingness to um, actually do something for America. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it, I haven't seen that as much as what I expected. Mm -hmm. What I have seen a ton of, but fortunately we were prepared for it, is a lot of fraudulent companies to begin with. Mm. Um, fraudulent companies, um, even adversary action to try to, um, to get inside of, um, quick decision-making. Was that mainly in that healthcare space that you were mentioning that you don't understand as well? Over, overwhelmingly so. Yeah. Um, and, um, we, when we, when I stood up the task force, we actually took a couple of unique, um, approaches to setting up the task force, whereby in the special staff, that applied to all four lines of effort teams operating. Um, we stood up a market intelligence and vendor vetting cell. Uh, and as part of that, we also invited the Air Force Audit Agency to join us in the task force right up front. And so the Air Force Audit Agency was constantly looking at our contracting practices across all four lines of effort and, and advising me and the leads on how we could tighten up our internal controls, even while we were, we were executing. 
which was uh, really a, a very innovative way to think about that. Rather than waiting until after the fact, and then it's too late anyway, it's just the recriminations that uh, the second thing is that vendor vetting capability wound up paying off big, big dividends. And so um, I don't want to get too much into the details of how we do that, but we were able to vet contractors before we ever did business with them. And even we were even able to vet some of the DHHS's contractors for them and quickly advise them on when not to do that deal, when not to award that contract. And um, one example um, that I would use that our vendor vetting cell um, saved the day on, our senior leaders in the Air Force actually got an unsolicited email uh, from a company that looked very, very credible. Uh, they used relationships that they had had to uh, be able to send that email. They had documentation attached that was very credible looking, uh, uh, lots of detail and pictures and labs and all the rest of it that showed a lot of deep capabilities. Thank God our leaders uh, had the presence of mind to ask the task force, ask my task force what they what we thought. And we uh, we vetted that contractor and it turned out that uh, they were not in America, as they said, they were in the Philippines. Uh, and frankly, there was some uh, international warrants out for their arrest and they didn't have uh, <laughs> they didn't have financial accounts or anything else. And so um, we, we have turned off a lot of fraud, waste, and abuse before it ever happened. Um, and so that was, that was uh, very, very key. I wanted to wrap up with my last question on the, the telework aspect of all this that you, that you talked about a little bit, but this is an intense topic of interest for people. General Bunch uh, from Air Force Material Command mentioned at a recent event that, that he's going to start looking through every single one of his civilian position descriptions to figure out if any of those jobs are more conducive to telework than they thought they were when they were written, and he's obviously got a big piece of your contracting workforce, how much of that is going on across the Air Force as far as you can tell? And, and what's the right way to think about how, how telework works in a post-COVID environment without, as, as you said, you know, expecting people to work at the pace they've been working at during during the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and telework is just one element of it, right? It's it's how much do you control personnel policies in your organizations? Mm. And at what level do you make those decisions? Those, I think, are the better questions to ask. And telework is only a piece of that. Um, and frankly, before this um, happened, I was already a, a kind of criticized the Air Force that I love, that we had become a little too bureaucratic in that, where um, a telework, a full-time telework decision in some places in the Air Force had to be approved at the two-star equivalent level. Um, and, you know, my own perspective was that should be a supervisor decision because if the supervisor is accountable for their work product and their people, uh, they're the ones that are best able to make the judgment on whether that kind of work can be done that way and whether the individual is trustworthy enough uh, to handle it. Um, I think now, as we look back uh, after this experience, uh, we had to go uh, with maximum telework. We had to go with innovative organizational designs. We couldn't afford to wait to get that approved through stodgy bureaucratic processes. And guess what? Not only did things not break, in some cases, things sped up and got better. Um, and so I, I think if we don't learn that lesson of how to rethink our organizational designs in a modern way, 
and and discard some of the group think of the past, then I then I would say shame on us. <laughs> and telework is only one part of that. But even on my own staff, I I, I use telework pretty heavily already. Uh, but I just advertised my chief of policy position um, as uh, able to be full-time telework, uh, where I never would have thought about doing that before. How much did your attitude change about telework because of this? I, I, I don't know what your pre-COVID attitude was, but but there were, I think it was a pretty universal view among senior folks in government that if you can't see somebody working, you can't guarantee that they're working. Um, that wasn't my feeling at all. I, okay. I was a big supporter of telework. In fact, I was that rabble browser at the bottom of the hill asking the senior leaders to approve telework for my folks. But I will tell you that in in large part, I saw it as a, um, a competitive imperative because we were losing a lot of really talented people to organizations that would allow them to full-time telework and have a better uh, work-life balance. And so I looked at it as a, as a, as a competitive imperative for both recruiting and retention of talent. Um, but I would say that you're absolutely correct. I think in retrospect now, there's a lot of minds changing about can we handle that? And to be fair, um, as I told you, we weren't even allowed to use some of the commercial tools that are out there that actually make telework possible. Mm-hmm. and multiple people collaborating at the same time possible. Um, but, you know, so many tools I could name that we have, um, have developed where it's really reduced the amount of work we do at all. I mean, some of the status updates that we do now, we just do all in teams, for example, because once it's there, it's there and it's like a wiki. And if any senior leader in the Air Force wants to see what I'm doing, they can just go look it up in the wiki. I don't have to send them an email or talk to them or anything. And so we're using those tools to their fullest extent when we didn't, we weren't even able to use them before. So that's, I think, a big uh, paradigm shift as well. Well, General Holt, you've been very generous with your time, and it's been a great discussion. Um, thanks very much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking all the time. Yeah, absolutely, Jared, and thank you very much. Major General Cameron Holt is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting at the Department of the Air Force. I'm Jared Serbu, and this interview was part of a special video presentation on Federal News Network called Lessons Learned from a Pandemic, How to Overcome Acquisition Bureaucracy. The program also included a follow-up panel with some members of industry reacting to some of what General Holt had to say. If you'd like to see the full video presentation, you can find it at federalnewsnetwork.com. And if you missed any part of this conversation, you can find our program, as always, in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.